The thing that united us, the thing that binds our family together, no matter how far away we are, is our Catholic faith. And, and for me, that, that was something that was really important and something that I really carried with me because that meant a lot to my parents to make that investment, to, to save that money, to make the sacrifices we did to see our family and to share that faith wherever in the world we were. I luckily also had the blessings to visit those cousins in their home countries and work took me to the Middle East for four months and study abroad took me to Chile for six. And in each one of those countries, I saw, I, I saw the church in its unique local setting. And you know, there's something about seeing the Padre Nuestro at a, in a Spanish mass. There's something amazing about the courage of the underground church. There's something unique about the Maori chant that you actually hear during the mass in New Zealand. And in each one of these countries, each one of these places, I got to experience the unique culture, the unique things that make those people those people. But it was all tied together by one thing, one fundamental truth that binds us all together, no matter where we're from, no matter what country we're from, no matter what language we speak. And that's our Catholic faith, and that's what we believe in, and that's what really undergirds our identity beyond all things. Kind of coming back to the U.S., I give you my international experience. I'm born and raised in the U.S., and my parents came here as immigrants, both of them born and raised in India, pursuing the American dream, like so many, like all of your ancestors at some point. And uh, the first place they came, uh, right, up, right from Mumbai, India, was South Central Minnesota, uh, which is where I was born. And that could not be more different than, than Mumbai, India temperature, climate, and people, and just absolutely everything. And for my parents, it was a tough time. My mom still talked. This is before FaceTime and WhatsApp, before you can just hop on the phone and talk to someone back home. But there was something there in New Ulm, Minnesota, that, that was a sense of home that was in, intrinsically tied to my parents' identity, and that was the church, the church where, where I was baptized and the church where they found community. And as I mentioned, we moved many times in the U.S., uh, started in Minnesota, Missouri, and Ohio. Ohio is where my sister was born. We kind of experienced that amazing Midwestern Catholic culture and made many friends who we value and cherish to this day. We, we even consider our family uh, people who, who mean so much to us but come from extremely different backgrounds but are united to us by faith and these values that, that ultimately undergird everything that we're about. Minnesota, Missouri, Ohio, and Florida. Florida is where I spent the longest time uh, to this day, kindergarten through seventh grade. Had an amazing parish and, uh, and, and school there at St. Joseph's. Uh, and just experienced the church and in each, in each one of these places, experienced a little bit of the local culture and local tradition. And in Florida, a lot of people at church were retirees. We basically got to be, me and my sister, were like the grandchildren of so many different people. And that was such an awesome uh, experience. Um, in 2008, it was a tough time for everyone. My father got laid off, and we, you know, we thought we'd be there for the, for the long haul, but we weren't. And we ended up moving to Colorado. For you know, that was right after seventh grade. Uh, so for a seventh grader, obviously, going to be a little dramatic about moving. Uh, but in the, you know, there's some there's some growing pains that come with that. But once again, coming to you know, Florida to Colorado is a pretty big move, especially when you're you know, 13, 14, um, maybe 12 actually. But the point is, it's, 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 a, it's a big move. Again, found the church, found the nativity of our Lord, Catholic school, found a great parish, and found great friends. And 
our family kind of just dialed back in and found amazing people. And within two years, uh, you know, we really found another community in a new place that couldn't be more different from, one, from where we're originally from, uh, but united in faith and just li living a great life, living the American dream. After that, so after Colorado, I mentioned all these moves. Uh, the next move took us uh, to a small town in, uh, called Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And when you mention Alabama, of course, this is where you might, you might realize that we're getting into the, the, this is the first time I really, really saw racism uh, in, in my life. And again, just like all these other places, the first place we found was Holy Spirit Catholic Church and Holy Spirit High School. Uh, which is where we went, and again, we found amazing people there, and an amazing community, and people who shared our beliefs and values, and people who, you know, we could feel at home with, and friends that we cherish to this day. But there was something different about Alabama, the, the scars of segregation, and the, the scars of racism were, were very much still there, and visible in a way that, that I couldn't, I'd never experienced before anywhere else in the U.S., uh, there were things that I just never thought I would see. Like there were there there were areas where you know if you were black you were supposed to shop here, if you were white you were supposed to shop here, and it wasn't written anywhere, and it wasn't anyone who was going to enforce it. But there were these certain unwritten rules that were kind of just expected and understood in society, uh, and it made things very difficult. I uh, it, I encountered questions that I never thought I would have to answer, and had never answered. Uh, up until that time in my life. Uh, I remember one of my first, my first days uh, there in, in Alabama, uh, they asked me, are you just black with messed up hair? And I said, no, no I'm actually not, I'm, uh, I'm Indian. And, and the response was, so are you Cherokee or Seminole? And at that point I realized, wow, this is really a different level that I'd never, never expected before. And it came to be a thing that, and again, this is, by no means the majority of people in Alabama, but this was a, a large minority, and this came up many times, where people asked me, and I had to answer for on multiple occasions, you know, explain to an adult what is an Indian? Like, where, where, where is India on a map? Why are we different from Native Americans? And, and kind of what that means. And that, that was shocking for me, and that was infuriating. There were other small things uh, that just, things that I never thought I would, I would experience in my life growing up in, in the United States. Uh, one time I was getting a, my hair cut for prom at just a local you know, kind of barber shop. And uh, you know, we were just making small talk and the lady asked me, so are, are your people even allowed to go to prom or do you have to have an arranged marriage? Um, other things came up where uh, when we were playing high school sports, uh, I didn't realize at the time that you know, Alabama takes, takes football pretty seriously and I played football there. Uh, but we were a Catholic and mixed-race football team, uh, which by the small school standards in rural Alabama is still uh, pretty progressive and, and pretty out there. And by no means in all towns, but to certain towns where we had football games, uh, we had to have a police escort from Tuscaloosa because if something went wrong in the, in the town, we <coughs> didn't really, we couldn't necessarily expect help. Uh, there was one school where we, I, I was told this after the fact, before I'd gotten there, we had had them attack two of our black basketball players on our high school basketball team, and we didn't play that school for a few years. There were all kinds of racially charged, uh, you know, in, in, in the heat of football or basketball, whatever games, a lot of times tempers boil over, 
but a lot of the time, a, a lot of things were very racially charged almost immediately or from the get-go. A lot of the schools we were playing were basically, you know, all white or all black, with very few exceptions. And uh, for, for one for one reason or the other, uh, we usually managed the way we we kind of had some way of making them angry just with our identity or, or whatever. This happened uh, a few times, not 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 the majority again. Um, but it was quite difficult. It was something I, I never thought uh, I would experience um, in the United States. And you know, I could go on with, the, with these small anecdotes, but I, I really thought about this, and there, there are two stories uh, that I really want to highlight um, from my time in Alabama that really talk about uh, ultimately the Catholic Christian response to racism. The first uh, was one of the most incredible men uh, I've ever met. Uh, his name is Deacon Fran Vassella. He's an Italian-American uh, from the Finger Lakes region of New York, who back in 1970, I think it was 75, ballparking numbers here, he, he worked for the YMCA and was transferred uh, to the YMCA in, in, in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And again, the, the, the things in Alabama, especially at that time, were still very much the kind of separate but equal, unwritten rules kind of deal. And he being, you know, firm Catholic and a person who believes in, in getting people, helping people move ahead into the preferential option for the poor, for looking out for the marginalized, he started a program when he was director of this specific branch of the YMCA, the, the, the one on the white side of town, to bus uh, black children from the poorer side of town to the YMCA on Wednesday nights, because Wednesday nights in Alabama is when most Protestant churches have meetings, so it's like the lowest, you know, there's not going to be a lot of people out on other things. So we thought that would be the most neutral time and, and, and the best time to not ruffle too many feathers, but to give these kids an opportunity, to give them you know, an opportunity to use better facilities, to have a quality after-school program, to have something to support themselves so that they could get ahead in life. And obviously, that almost immediately you know, ruffled some feathers. And ultimately, you know, Deacon Frannon, again, for reasons that were never made clear to him or for reasons that, you know, he was told indirectly so many times, uh, you know, you should probably stop that. You know, we don't really like it that way. You know, we don't really understand how, you know, you don't really understand how things work down here because you're a Yankee, you're from New York, you're from the North. Also being Catholic, very much into the minority. He refused to stop the program and eventually, after three, three to four months of, of this program running, he was let go for arbitrary reasons that were never attributed to something directly. And he had moved his family, Miss Kathy, his, his wife and his two, uh, and, and his great children, uh, from New York uh, to, to Alabama. And, you know, that was a big move. I'm talking like late 70s, early 80s here, so this is, you know, not, people aren't as mobile. And he kind of found, found himself out of a job, you know, with a family to provide for, a young family, school-aged children, in a place that was essentially foreign to him, where he was not that loved by the local population. And having the grit of, of an Italian-American, I guess, he had a great family recipe for pizza, right? And Deacon Fran and his family, from scratch, at the back of a bar, started their own family-run pizza shop called Bambabinos. And if you talk to Deacon Fran, you know, he, he glows when he talks about this. He, it's the American dream. He built it from scratch. He built it with his own hands, with his own family. Great family recipe, built up this great pizza shop that 
You know, he paid his workers well. He was an active member of the community. He built it into a multi-rest, multi-location place. Uh, it, at one point, was doing over $2 million a, a year in revenue at all these different locations. And he was just doing great for the community through commerce. And he literally picked himself up, picked himself up by his own bootstraps with obviously the help and support of his family. And he used his time and treasure for the, great, for the betterment of the community. He didn't keep all that money for himself. He gave free pizzas away to charitable organizations. He used profits to put his new school to have scholarships for people who were left on the margins. And then one day, so you know, they, they, this is over 10 years now, it's early 1990s. Joey, his son, uh, went to the local university. At the local university, there's a group called The Machine, uh, which is basically run, has run the student government there and has a lot of pull in the local town. And, and it's very much based in the Old South and has a very clear, almost 100% racial demographic. Uh, and they've run things on that campus for a very long time. And Joey was an outsider, right? He was, he was his, his dad was, was a Yankee, was a Catholic. Uh, and Joey kind of didn't stand for the establishment. He wasn't part of that old money group of people. And he was a really popular kid and he stood up for the people who were marginalized in a way on, on, a, on a college campus. Not necessarily the greatest fight, but he was an outsider and he wanted to make school more accessible. And ultimately, he ran for student body president um, against a machine-backed candidate in, in what is a pretty, there are allegations, there's still allegations uh, about what actually happened, if there was election tampering, all these different kinds of things. Ultimately, what happened is I believe he lost the election, but what was worse was the machine put a boycott out on Bambino's, on this pizza shop that Deacon Fran had started from scratch to make his community a better place. So they, the machine basically taxed people in the local town and put a, a fee, would charge fees to students who patronized this pizza shop. And they essentially put him out of business. So he had built, he had built this up from, from scratch after being laid off the first time over now 20, going on 20 years. He had built this up into something amazing that was making an impact in the community. But because his son had the courage to stand up to them, they lost it. I'll get, I'll get back to Deacon Frank because he's, he's the first story. Though you might, you might say, bro, those are old stories are from the 70s and 90s, but let me tell you about 2011 when my family first moved there. So my dad, my dad had a job in, in not Tuscaloosa, in a town called Utah, Alabama, E-U-T-A-W. It's about 45 minutes outside of, of Tuscaloosa. It is really the backwoods of, of the United States. And to give you an idea, it was one of the richest counties in the South before the Civil War, so it was basically a plantation. And ever since, you know, ever since the Emancipation Proclamation through the Civil Rights era, it's basically been a place full of, you know, of sharecroppers, of people who are on the margins, primarily black community, who are, who are really just not in a great, all the, all the demographic numbers and quality of life numbers are, are quite difficult um, in this town. And my father became the, uh, the manager of a catfish plant, and that was his job in, in Utah. And what happened there is that, the, with, with almost no exception, every single one of the line workers, the hourly workers, uh, were, were either black or Latino. And all the, all the, all the management were old, old, old South and kind of white Southerners uh, who in no way were looking out for, for, for their workers. 
And the, the system in, in, in this part of the country obviously incentivizes this. Is, this is the first time I've really stared what we call structural racism in the face. The system really incentivizes keeping these people marginalized because the more uneducated they are, the more they can't get out of that cyclical poverty, the more you have free labor, you know, relatively cheap labor for your catfish plant or whatever. A few factories exist in that part of the country. And my father, being you know, a, a strong Catholic, and this is the proudest I've ever been of my dad, he, he, stood up, he stood up to this system and made the decision, as any strong Catholic should, that he was going to try and make a difference in the lives of his, of his workers. And he, he, he started programs. There were two amazing local nuns uh, there in, in Utah who, who had programs to help people, um, to help people uh, who needed job training, who needed education. Um, and he, he, there, there was also a program that he was trying to start uh, with a local community college. It never got off the ground, but it was to give people uh, training to help, make, you know, help them move up the pipeline a little bit, help them move up um, in the world. And, and he met with a lot of resistance. Um, first, on the, on, on, on the bottom end, there was a very predatory, uh, a very predatory union uh, who was really taking advantage of a lot of these line workers, again, primarily black and Hispanic workers, um, with very low levels of education and literacy. On the higher end, from, from you know, these people from basically the Old South, he was told, you know what, you don't understand how things work around here. You came in from Colorado. This is just the way things run here. Don't mess with the system. It works well for us. We don't want you to change it. And he made the decision then that he wasn't going to take that. And he kept up these programs, did the best that he could. He hired a black female HR manager, so someone who was going to be in upper management of this factory, not out of tokenism, but because she was the best candidate for the job. And that riled a lot of feathers. Again, he was told, hey, you don't understand how things work around here. That's not how we do things. But, but he didn't care. Because he came back to that identity that, that is so important to us, that means so much to us. That because our Catholic faith and the preferential option for the poor and looking out for the marginalized is more important than, than getting ahead materially. Ultimately, what happened in 2013, again, this is not that long ago, this when I was in high school, maybe you were probably in high school age. Similar to Deacon Fran almost 20, 20 years before him, all of a sudden he was called in one day and told, you know what, the numbers aren't looking great. We're letting you go. And then my father lost his job again with no, no business explanation ever showed to him, no figures ever showed to him, even though he asked for them. It was, it was, it was, never, it was never shown to him. And he was let go from his job, and that year it was my senior of high school, my sister's eighth grade year of high school. He couldn't find another job in Tuscaloosa, and he had to go find one um, in Atlanta. So he lived, you know, four hours away for all of our final years of sec of you know, primary school and high school. And it was a very difficult time for our family. But I will never be prouder of my dad because in that moment, he made the decision that even though he knew he would suffer for people that he didn't know. And for people that were very different than him, it was really important to him to stand by his values. And he did. 
to come back to is that there are two different types of racism that we've seen here. The one I first mentioned, the one that I experienced personally, the person who was calling me whatever. There were a bunch of there were a bunch of different uh, different slurs. Some that I'm not going to repeat in church, but some that uh, grew on me. One that I got called multiple times was Aladdin, and you know I kind of like that Disney movie. So of all the all the different names, you know I, I didn't mind that one. I can show you the world. <laughs> but, uh, but those, but those conversations, those, those conversations, that racism, I, f- I found that with human interaction, with connection, you could get through them. With talking to somebody, with showing them, hey, you know, being Indian is just a part of, of just a small part of who I am. I'm actually a very complex individual. And did you know that actually? You know, the black community here has a lot to offer and that they are valued members of this community and you should kind of reach out and try to, you know, grow, grow from this. And there, a little bit of that, a little bit of that, right, that name calling, that the stuff you see in the movies, that's, that's relevant. It's not easy, but there are conversations that you can have. And it's kind of, it's kind of dark, but one, <laughs> my favorite anecdote of that is right before I moved, right before I moved away to Atlanta, uh, one of my former teammates, uh, who played basketball with me for three years? Uh, it was pretty clear that his grandfather uh, was was quite racist. But he he came up to me, this this teammate of mine, and after three years of knowing each other, he said, "You know, my grandpa knows that me and you are friends, so he doesn't hate Arabs anymore." And, 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 I, and I was so I was so taken aback by that statement. I was like, you know, it's been three years, so I'm not even here. <laughs> but, but, you know, that's, that's good, I guess. That's, <laughs> that's a small win, that's a baby step. And, uh, you know, I guess, I guess that one, that one old man, if for nothing else, that one old man in the South uh, <laughs> hates one ethnic group less. <laughs> so, it was not all for naught. Um, but that you can, you can address through human interaction. The other one, the structural racism, the people who are out to get you, the people who benefit from these systems of, the, these systems that keep people in poverty, that keep people down, that keep people marginalized. Well, I don't have the answer to that, because if I had the answer to structural racism, uh, yeah, I think I probably would I'd probably be trying to tell somebody what it is. But Deacon Fran, going back to that story, I told you he lost his business. He could have quit. He could have, uh, you know, he could have, he could have gone back to New York. He has a big Italian family up there in the Finger Lakes region, uh, and he could have left. And he, and he, and he, and he could have lived a perfectly happy, incredible life up there. But he stayed because I, I've talked to him about this, and he was, he was more than willing. I should say, I should give him credit because he had a long phone call with me this last week to refresh these details for me. But he stayed. And uh, he, he still lives there to this day. I called him this last Sunday, and he's still sitting in Tuscaloosa. And he devoted the rest of his life, and he's still, you know, he's still there. He's still chugging along and doing just, just fine. And, and he's a great man. But he stayed there, and even though he knew that it would be difficult, and even though he knows that he, for a lot of people there, he's, he's angered the wrong people, and he knows that he has what are viewed as controversial opinions by a lot of people in that part of the country, he stayed there and he suffers and he has ministered to the poor black population of West Alabama. And I mean, that's the closest thing to a living saint I've ever seen. Him and his family, Miss Kathy and you know, his kids, 
are, are amazing people who devoted their life to, to moving the marginalized ahead. Same thing with my dad, with the, with the story of, of, of structural racism, of dealing with these systems. Uh, you know, like I said, I don't have the answer, but I think you know, the Black Lives Matter movement in 2020 have, have shown us that maybe the, the racial injustice and the scars in this country are deeper than we thought before. Obviously, I don't have an answer, but we're having at least a discussion about it uh, to this, you know, today. And, and I hope, you know, my, my kind of closing message is that I hope, you know, with, from the bottom of my heart that we kind of look at these things as Catholics. We start with empathy and compassion and courage and, and do the best that we can to make a difference. Because here in Arlington, you know, this is not West Alabama. And you know, problems are not as clear here, or clearly not. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm ignorant to them, but they're not in my face here as much as they are in other places. But we as Americans and we as Catholics have an obligation to have this discussion and take tangible action. And that's ultimately my message uh, to you, to you guys tonight. Going back to where I started, uh, the universal identity of the Catholic Church, that faith that holds us all together, those tenets that hopefully we would each give our lives for. Um, something I've, I've found is that, you know, I've, I've had ups and downs in my life, some, some big downs and some great ups, some, some just amazing, I've been blessed with just some amazing people um, and amazing friends and amazing family. Uh, but when those times get tough, Lean on that family and lean on faith, because at the end of the day, that's all that you have. You know, there have been times, there's been nights where I've, you know, I've had to cry myself to sleep, but there have been nights where I've, I've thought it's tough. But my family, my parents, my friends, some of them here in this room, have always been there, and he'll always be there. So you can always come here. You can always say a prayer here. But anyways, I'm getting close to time. So, I'll close with that. And uh, I just hope that uh, each of you will join me in the, the serenity prayer, which is how I'd like to close tonight. So, God, grant us the serenity to accept the things we cannot change, the courage to change the things we can, and the wisdom to know the difference. May Notre Dame, our mother, continue to watch over each and every one of us. Thank you for coming tonight.